We are back. Still reporting to you from the Republic of St. Kitts and Nevis. I think I probably should talk a little bit about Nevis's most uh, famous contribution to the world, or at least to the United States, having been educated a bit recently about him. And yeah, I'm referring to the guy on the $10 bill, Alexander Hamilton. As mentioned, the two islands that make up this republic are kind of a baseball and bat. The ball being Nevis, where Hamilton was born in January of 1755. Or was it 1757? Apparently, apparently people are not sure. He wanted to be older sometimes, so I think he, you know, fudged his birth date. Something I understand Zsa Gabor did also. Our future Secretary of the Treasury was born out of wedlock in the town of Charleston on the island of Nevis. He was effectively orphaned at about the age of 11, but the good people of Nevis recognized that he was a young man of, of, of exceptional abilities. They sponsored his, um, his travel to the United States to go to get a college education, which was pretty nice of him. He attended King's College, which is better known today as Columbia University in New York City. Apparently in New York, he was again recognized as a person of exceptional ability and got appointed to the Congress of the Confederation. He resigned that to practice law and somewhere along the way founded the Bank of New York. When the Revolutionary War started, he organized an artillery company and was chosen, and was chosen as its captain. Again, he was recognized as being a talented individual. And before you know it, he became the aide-de-camp and confidant to General George Washington, the American commander-in-chief. At any rate, we'll go into some more detail on this uh, once yours truly is back uh, home again. The article I had on Hamilton, which I did not bring with me, had some pretty good juicy gossip in it. And of course, that's the stuff we always like to include when we're talking history. So we'll, so we'll do a little bit of that on next week's program. At any rate, to change the subject rather dramatically, which we sometimes like to do, let's move from Alexander Hamilton to the mantis shrimp. Although, oddly enough, this isn't the complete discontinuity it, it might seem to you, dear listener. At least, it's not to me, because while here, in the beautiful Caribbean, looking over at the island of Nevis, I was informed by a veterinary student down here, a man by the name of Dylan, who described with some distress, but yet with color, I guess you would, you would add, uh, his encounter with a mantis shrimp. Apparently, someone told him that they were in these nooks and crevices uh, in the Caribbean and that you should never stick your hand down into a, one of these holes because of the possibility that you would be attacked by a mantis shrimp. Now, apparently, Dylan had some doubt that this little shrimp could do him much harm, even though, as we talked about in this program, they apparently are notorious for having this Thor-like hammer at their disposal, which will actually crack the glass of an aquarium if you put them in one. We talked about this curious creature when we spoke to Dr. Ivan Schwab about his book, Evolution's Witness, due to the peculiarity that um, the mantis shrimp apparently has 16 different photoreceptors in its eyes, whereas we humans get by with three. 
And oddly enough, I find myself speculating about these photoreceptors in the eye of a mantis shrimp with a veterinary student just well yesterday as he said, well, I guess that they have to see that well to see what's going on when a guy puts his fingers down into their cave. Because apparently when Dylan did so, the shrimp lowered the boom, which caused him to withdraw in pain, bleeding profusely into the water and wondering about the proximity of the nearest sharks. He was apparently pretty impressed by the power of this creature, holding up his fingers and saying, I just, I'm glad that I have both of these still. All of which makes a wonderful segue to the following uh, sentence out of New Scientist magazine, which was, next time you snorkel near a coral reef, keep an eye out for a mantis shrimp. Dylan, are you listening? Although it turned out rather boringly, the article pointed out that the shrimp, after being studied by some people in Australia, was noted to move its eyes back and forth in a manner that previously had been known only in primates. Which, again, doesn't seem all that earth-shaking to us, but I did like the way the, the, the piece in New Scientist closed. It said, Mantis shrimp hunt by clubbing their prey, and the rapid eye movements may help with targeting. Something else we talked about in this program before, the, uh, the strange increase in asthma that's been seen worldwide. We also talked in previous programs both about um, how high-fiber diets are good for you and how we're just trying to figure out what is going on inside the human gut as regards to different types of bacteria. Well, all of these things are combined in this piece from New Scientist, which I'll quote from. Eating from a high-fiber diet could trigger changes in the immune system that protect against allergen-triggered asthma. Benjamin Marshall at the University Hospital of Luzon in Switzerland found that mice fed a low-fiber diet had double the number of immune cells associated with asthmatic inflammation compared to those on a standard diet. Um, and they exposed both groups to house mite dust and um, got these results. Mice given fiber supplements on top of a standard diet showed a reduction in those immune cells, but apparently only if that supplement was fermentable in their guts, which, which suggests that this protective effect can be traced back to gut bacteria. There's going to be some interesting breakthroughs in medicine in the not-too-distant future in this area we fairly confidently predict. And uh, if human biology is going to benefit, as, as it is going to, most certainly in a big way, evolutionary biology is, is being revolutionized by the breakthroughs that have been made through in DNA sequencing. Although I have to admit, I'm a little unclear about how they're coming to some of the decisions they're making, such as a recent conclusion at the Institute of Molecular and Cell Biology in Singapore, that um, the living fossil to beat all others is apparently the elephant shark. It's believed to have the slowest evolving genome of any vertebrate. These are not true sharks, but they belong to groups called ratfish. They diverged from sharks about 400 million years ago. And when they finally got around to sequencing the genome of these creatures, they found that it had changed less from its presumed ancestral form than any other. This is the part I don't quite get. How do they sequence the presumed ancestral form? I guess it has to do with similarities and, uh, you know, sort of how things diverge. If you happen to know something about this particular area of DNA sequencing, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We are keen to learn more. All right, and something else we have to confess to having very incomplete knowledge of is this idea that, uh, well, that Einstein might be wrong. We've noticed that a lot of magazines are sold on, on this tantalizing idea that something out there may be proving Einstein wrong. And, of course, new scientists went for this again with their, uh, their January 4th edition. 
this is something else that I hope that someone out there listening will um, will will chip in and, and send us a note explaining some of this on because I just don't get how some of this really amounts to a hill of beans. But let me quote from uh, what may be some overblown prose out of New Scientist, talking about how um, space-time, as it was defined by Einstein, is something that uh, scientists think they have a handle on. They have no idea what's really going on, but it can be described with accuracy. Let's put it that way. Einstein's equations always seem to hold up. But after the magazine released the article written by Stuart Clark posed the question of whether we'll be able to see the true nature of space-time, or at least uh, they quoted someone as saying, this is a beautiful question. We're beginning to answer it. They noted that in 2005, we perhaps have got a glimpse at an answer. MAGIC an acronym for the Major Atmospheric Gamma Ray Imaging Cherenkov Telescope. Wow, that's why they call it MAGIC, which is a series of giant receivers on La Palma in the Canary Islands, turned, tuned in to detect some cosmic light from gamma rays. On June 30th of that year, the, air, the array detected a burst of gamma radiation from a black hole in the heart of Markarian 501, a galaxy 500 million light years away. The article notes that this wasn't unexpected. Current theories predict that every time something falls into a giant black hole, a flare of radiation will be given off. But they noted that those large enough to be caught by an Earth-bound telescope, even a, a receiver like the one at Magic, are few and far between. And then this Markarian flare was apparently the first of its type to be seen. What type is that, you ask? Well, apparently it was the type where the lower energy radiation seemed to have arrived up to four minutes before the higher energy radiation. Apparently, according to our current understandings of space-time, that's not supposed to happen. But I got to tell you, I haven't lost any sleep over this, this emission from the Markarian 501. And I'm pretty sure you haven't either, dear listener. And apparently there are some other observations that are consistent with this from some other gamma-ray bursters out there. Unfortunately, for those who would like to see clarity in this, they've done some other observations that are not uh, problematic. They do go exactly according to predictions. So what the hell does all this mean? I don't know. So why did I bring it up? Well, apparently, a lot of people are convinced that if we can get some good neutrino detection going out there, that uh, the energy in the neutrinos is going to shed a great deal of light on this and see, and see whether Einstein is right or Einstein is wrong. Personally, I'm betting on Albert. Although I have to admit, it never seems to fail to, to pique people's interest if you talk about the possibility that Einstein could be wrong. So I'd like to note that on next week's program, Radio Parallax is going to take a look at some new evidence that Einstein might be wrong. Be sure to tune in. All right, we've only got a few minutes left here. Uh, I should note that people have asked me, are you going to go on a cruise if you're going to go down to the Caribbean? And, and my answer has been um, no, 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 I'm not. One reason is an item I've been sitting on since last May from those uh, 10, 10 Things They Won't Tell You, uh, reprints they have out of the Wall Street Journal. And number 10 from, I think it was uh, May 12th of last year, uh, was this couple of paragraphs. Cruisers like to advertise clear skies and pristine water, but environmental groups point out these floating cities with thousands of passengers and crew leave behind a lot of waste from sulfurous engine emissions to so-called black water, essentially what goes down the toilet, which can spread disease and contribute to fish-killing algae growth. It should be noted, as they do in the piece, 
that a typical one-week voyage by a mid-sized vessel leaves behind 210,000 gallons of black water, which is enough to fill about 10 backyard swimming pools. That was according to a recent study sponsored by the nonprofit Friends of the Earth. The caption for that item number 10 from the piece was, Don't swim in our wake. Uh, no. I can remember very well visiting a friend down in uh, Cabo San Lucas about a decade and a half ago, I guess. And he was living the good life down there for a couple of years and uh, pretty proud of his new Mexican environment. We went out for a swim one day. Swam out this inlet out to some rocks, climbed on top of them, scampered about. Beautiful environment. Blue sky, blue water, fish. Had our snorkeling equipment. It was great. And then... A small tour boat filled with Mexican tourists pulled in, disgorged a couple of dozen people with uh, flippers and masks to paddle about. Now, why at this particular point of time, the captain of the boat elected to discharge his wastewater was a mystery I'll probably never solve. But uh, I want to assure you that it did nothing to improve the aquatic environment. I think it'd be best if... uh, I didn't describe in any kind of detail what uh, <clears throat> what then happened, but I will say that my friend, who not five minutes before had been pointing and looking around, had been pointing the environment around him and saying, "Welcome to my world," grew very silent, and I think all about either one of us could say was, "Good God!" as we swam back as we swam back by an alternate route. Anyway, we're running out of time, and I certainly can't end on that. Let me instead talk about a curious conversation I had yesterday with a pal that dropped by. I was talking about travel and how he wanted to take some time and do more traveling, something that's uh, um, resonating with me. We were swapping data on places that, you know, one of us had been and the other hadn't. I've not been to Japan. He was very high in Japan, recommended that, uh, that, I, that I get over there and check it out. He said it's a place where everything works. He asked about the pyramids in Egypt, which he'd not been to, and said, must see? I said, yes, must see. We talked about various island groups out in the Pacific that that should be checked out, places like Easter Island, places like Yap, also the islands that are are part of Indonesia, etc., etc. Cuba came up in the conversation. I said to my pal, you should see Cuba. He said, I don't think I will. There's so many places that are must-sees that people just say, you've got to see this, that uh, you know, why should I go to a place that doesn't get that kind of ringing endorsement? I said, well, you should see it because it's going to change so much in the future. And there are many parts of Cuba that are just thoroughly enjoyable. He said, yeah, I hear the crime rate is uh, really quite low. I said, yeah, yeah. A lot of police. I do want to add that we've been uh, rather critical uh, of Cuba and its ham-fisted uh, mismanagement over the years. I-, I think things really are getting better there. We've, we've made fun of these reports in the past that are making that claim, but at this point in time, it appears that, that, that some friends I have on the island are, are able to communicate via email. That has actually not been possible until recently, and I think that that is a sign that things are moving in the right direction. Of course, it's worth mentioning that uh, such communications between the two nations are, you know, almost certainly going to be monitored. 
And it's refreshing to note that uh, in a free society like America, unlike a more controlled uh, system of governance such as they have in Cuba, we Americans don't have to worry about our electronic communications being snooped. Yeah, or so we would have chosen to believe. Which reminds me of an email I got a few days ago from JJ, who listened to our, our chatting about Snowden a while back and said, So, pardon him or not? What's your opinion? To which I wrote back, Snowden should not only be pardoned, he should be given a medal. But it's not going to happen. The security-military-industrial complex cannot very well have constitutional rights get in the way of their huge paychecks. She wrote back, that's what I love about Radio Parallax. Always a strong opinion. Well, I don't know if it's always a strong opinion, but we certainly like to offer some up and uh, comment on the things that are going on in a way that we think should be discussed, which is a reason why when our pledge drive, uh, which is coming upon us in April, is a time to consider your support to community-based stations like this one. We absolutely need your support. Please do what you can to contribute. All right, that does it. We are out of time. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, who he wishes to announce has now become a full-on Rastafarian. Isn't that right? Yeah, man. All right, I'm Douglas Everett. I'll see you next week at the same time. And we close by noting that when you get a chance, get up and do a little bit of traveling.